name is Clint. I'm an alcoholic. I love doing that. My grandma always looked at me in church and go. I'm glad to be here. I'm absolutely delighted to be at this conference. And uh, I want to thank Dick and Peg for including me in the lineup. I'm, uh, it's, it's a wonderful place to play. And I want to tell you, if you're new, that uh, there, there are so many miracles in this room and in our lives and the only way that we, that we can miss any of that is to take credit for it. We miss our miracles by taking credit for them. And if you're new here, uh, you are very welcome. And these people will take you and hold you and love you back to what uh, uh, life you were intended to have before you began to live out your second and third choices. Um, <laughs> And I know that because I have such great faith in AA and its people. And that's because uh, of a loving God and his grace and sponsorship and meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and its members. I have not had to have a drink since the 14th of August, 1966. And that is uh, uh, to be able to live the quiet miracle of a sober life is still astonishes me. Monday uh, was my 34th uh, anniversary in alcoholic. I call that bail bondsman that brought me here. I call him on my birthday every year and let him know what happened to me because he was kind to me in July of 1966, about a month before I was sober. I'm walking along the sidewalk in Glendale and he uh, uh, pulled up his car and called my name and I looked over and I knew that face was vaguely familiar. And... Uh, it was because uh, he's a bail bondsman and he and I had done a little business together. <laughs> and he motioned me over to the car and he talked to me a minute and asked me how I was doing. And I don't have any idea what I said, but I know I didn't look like I was doing very well. And I wasn't doing very well. I was living in a, uh, a shed at the time. I, I used to call for years. I called it a garage, a double garage. Uh, a couple of years ago, my wife and I were over in that area. She said, I want to see the garage. And uh, we drove down in there. She said, is that it? I said, that's it. She said, uh, that's not a garage. <laughs> that's a shed is what that is. <laughs> and I looked and by God, uh, no car had ever gotten in that little thing. <laughs> And I lived there. I lived there with three or four of us lived there. A little room cut up in the little room. I had my own room. I took a great deal of pride in that. I, uh, and there was a shower out someplace. I uh, uh, could hear him uh, using it. Uh, I didn't actually go there myself, but I... Uh, 
may get sick in there. You ever get sick in the shower? It's uh, no, none of them here. Nobody. Uh, Poking those chunks down the drain with your fingers. This is a delicate Incidentally, I want to say. Peggy uh, spoke this morning, and, and as these speakers have just given superb talks, and I uh, know you've enjoyed these talks very much. This uh, I loved uh, uh, Luther, uh, and uh, I have for years loved Luther. I uh, uh, I know and love Eileen, who spoke on Friday night, and Bob, who spoke today, and Sharon and I go. I'll tell you about. Sharon, uh, because I saw her come into Alcoholics Anonymous, my group, the home group, is the Pacific Group. Clancy is my sponsor, and it's been that way for 32 of these 34 years. And uh, one day, uh, and there's something about knowing who you're with that is just so sweet for us. I mean, you're new, and you come in here, and how? I don't think these people quite get it that I, uh, I've tried to quit and I can't quit. These people don't seem to get it. They're, they're fine not drinking, but I, I don't do that. I mean, they're nice and everything, but um, I, I don't know how long I can stay here. And, the, and you begin to collect little moments where you know that somebody else has been there. And, I'm, uh, uh, and I remember... Uh, Years ago, I guess, we were in some, we had taken our group, uh, somebody in the group had gotten tickets to a play downtown, and we went down on a Saturday afternoon, I suppose, a bunch of us, 20 of us sitting in this theater to see the matinee on, a, I think it was Equus, and there was a big name actor in there, and, in, and a bunch of us were there, and I remember Sharon sitting about, and Sharon is going to speak tomorrow morning, sitting about five or six seats down to my left. And the line was, uh, the, the actor in this line, and I don't remember the context, but he had a pint in his hand, and he started to take a drink out of it, and his line was, it's empty, and he threw it down. And I just happened to glance down, and there's Sharon, and she happened to be looking at me, and we went, that's not empty. <laughs> we got it. There's that much in there. And I, I, it's almost like we want to say, no, not yet, no. It's, it's a little booze in there. Don't be so quick. And I love that because I knew in that moment that uh, we're both pigs, basically. <laughs> Terrible pigs about booze. And it warms you, you know. It warms you. And I know that about other people in this room. And you will learn it about us if you're new. We, we drank like you did. We drank like you did. And when that bail bondsman said, I'm going to take you someplace today, I didn't ask him. That was the condition of my life. 
It's not like I'm too busy to go wherever we're going, right? <laughs> and he put me in his car, and he took me over to the Glendale Alano Club, whatever that may be. And I sat there with uh, you and was at two meetings of AA before the day was over. And three weeks went by, and I was going to those meetings, and then I had some bad luck. I came across some cash and a little bit of uh, amphetamine at about the same time. Uh, And I was gone. I was gone for two nasty, ugly, nasty weeks. And I woke up again in that little room, that little hot, smelly, $11 a week room with a wet mattress and a light that came out of the ceiling. I had a radio, a clock radio. It would just begin to play at weird hours of the day and night. <laughs> you take it out and put it in the dirt and it still plays. You know, young project. I had a rat in there that was glaring at me all night long. It scared me to death. And then first light of day, I looked again and in some weird way that rat had turned into a pair of socks laying over there in the corner. <laughs> and so if you're new here and you have one of those radios uh, or you've been held hostage by a pair of socks all night, <laughs> I get that. I get that. But I didn't get it that day. I didn't get it on the 14th of August. I just woke up sick and broke and out of booze and out of... uh... Somebody said uh, how lost we are. How lost. Really lost. And I was lost. But that bail bondsman had taken me over to the club and I walked over there that morning, about the middle of the morning, another hot day. And there was a guy... uh, that was doing his job in Alcoholics Anonymous because the door was open at the Glendale Club and the coffee was on and he was kind to me. He was kind to me. And he asked me how I was doing because he recognized me from the meetings. And I said, I'm not doing so good. He said, what happened? I said, I got drunk. Got drunk and let everybody down. And uh, he said, are you alcoholic? And I didn't want to lie to him, and I didn't know the answer, really. And so I said, uh, yeah, I've been an alcoholic about a month now. Something. <laughs> Mild case. He didn't go after me. He just said, come on in. Come on in. And he said, by the way, uh, you say you're alcoholic and you drank. Yeah. Bad. Yeah. He said, alcoholics do that. You didn't let us down. You didn't surprise us. In fact, he said, if you want to surprise us, get a job. (laughs) That'll surprise us. 
But he said, if you're an alcoholic, you're going to drink. I couldn't have said that. He just seemed to have a real clarity for me, and it was not an unkind kind of a way he presented it. He just said, if you're, going to, if you're an alcoholic, you're going to drink, and you'll drink no matter what. And I'll tell you something, I drink no matter what. I do that. I'll say, Peg mentioned I'm, uh, I don't remember quite how she said it, much married, I believe is what she said. <laughs> I've been married. To, and I really, I hated that about myself. Before I was married twice, drinking twice in sobriety, and then 15 years went by and I didn't marry anybody. I was so proud of myself. I had, didn't quit, but I didn't get married. I'm married now. I've been married for four years to Linda. And as I will get to telling you, uh, I'm really happy about that. I'm happy about my relationship with her. I didn't know uh, there's a difference between a relationship and an arrangement, you know. Uh, An arrangement is a contractual kind of a thing. You do this for me, I'll do that for you. It's it's an attempt to get security. Nothing wrong with it, but it's like uh, when they're over, they're over. But a relationship has sort of a covenant to it and a kind of like on sacred ground, you know. And so it's been fascinating to me to be in this place, to get it about commitment. And I uh, am a little long in the tooth to say this will never end, but uh, I know this. I know that. See, there, the, the, the concepts were read tonight, and the ultimate authority for the operation of Alcoholics Anonymous is the meetings, according to the concepts. And the traditions tell us that the ultimate authority for the group conscience is a loving God. And I noted tonight that in our group, there is in the Pacific group a loving God. And I know without any doubt that there is here a loving God. And I know the Foxhall group, a loving God in each of its divisions, each of the little groups that have sprung away from it. I have no doubt that there's a loving God that presides over the Fargo meeting and all of the, you know. Now, that's very important because when I got here, I did not have a loving God. And so, and I wondered for a long time why I felt better in a meeting. And that's because I came from a place where there was no loving God in my life into a room where there was a loving God. And sometimes at the end of the meeting, I'd leave and take my, I, my God in those days. See, you've got to play, we play the God game. Do not say if you're new here that you don't have a God. You've got a God. You just probably of all the gods you could have chosen, you chose one you didn't like. You know, it's, it's kind of like that. I did. He's little guy, can't do much. He's mad about something or other all the time. He's way the hell out there someplace. And we have a, not a 
covenant. We don't have a relationship. We have an arrangement that I've tried to impose. You leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. <laughs> you don't bother me, I won't be aggravating you anymore than I can help. <laughs> My mom used to say, have you found God yet? Oh, Ma. <laughs> what will you do when you meet your maker? Apologize? I... Hey. Forever, you know, kind of looms out there somehow. Especially when it's used in the same word as the word burning. Uh, And so there's a loving God in here, and I have no doubt about it, because uh, every, every, there's just every miracle in here. Every seat is, as they say, occupied by a miracle. And it goes like this. I, I had my last drink on the 14th of August, 1966. I did not sign on for 34 years. The guy just said, stay here today. You're going to drink no matter what. Stay here today. He wouldn't talk to me about tomorrow. Stay here today. Today. And later on, if you can uh, hold something down, we'll get you a little sandwich. They had little porcelain cups. and I didn't even want to try. You know what I mean? Because your, your arms kind of take <laughs> off. But I was back the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And it was nine months Nine months went by before I was aware that I hadn't wanted a drink in a long time. And the interesting thing to me is I did not quit drinking. I didn't know that was going to be my last drink. I did not know that. And if you're new here... You might look around this room and see all these people that say they're alcoholics and say they're not drinking, and you kind of believe that they are alcohol. I mean, it's, you know, people don't generally sneak in here uh, just to hang out. <laughs> and it looks like uh, we've quit. Yeah. And you know you can't quit because you tried and it didn't work. I got good news for you. You don't have to quit. Connie got up here and read the steps. And they I think they'd tell us. They're so direct here. And you'd think if it was about quitting, it would somehow they'd get it across to us. Be like, uh, step one, quit. <laughs> Come on now. Knock it off. It doesn't say that. It says, uh, basically, step one, you've got to get that you are toast. <laughs> it's over. You're done. Powerless, unmanageable. Chamberlain used to say, a guy out in California, if I'd have known that was going to be my last drink, I would have had two. He
Why, we'd do some drama with it, wouldn't we? <laughs> Swear off forever. We were talking, Bob uh, uh, was... Uh, such a contributor at that international conference and I enjoyed it so much in Minneapolis and uh, uh, a lot of people contributed and I'm sitting in a meeting and a guy's talking about taking pledges pledges he said uh, he wanted to go down to the priest and take a pledge for the rest of his life and the priest wouldn't let him do that but they let him take a 30 day pledge and a 60 day he said I finally realized the pledge is simply a promise to begin drinking again on a certain day. And I thought, yeah, that's how we look at all of that kind of stuff, you know. We just have a strange relationship with alcohol. We we believe in it, don't we? We there. Uh, I come in here. I was raised. What do you believe? Because in the Church of the Air in Billings, Montana, and praise God, Montana is represented here tonight. It warms me so much. <laughs> I rejoice with you. <laughs> Church of the Air in Billings, Montana. It's all about what you believe. And you've got to believe some really colorful stuff. <laughs> stuff that's kind of hard to believe, you know. And it's not about like what's in the Bible. But they had their own little subtext on everything. And the list of things that are sinful that just boggle you. And when you're a little kid, you know you are in deep trouble. <laughs> you know you better get down to the front of the church and get saved, except that my uncle did that and they sent his butt to China to be a missionary. And I, no, no. Got <laughs> baptized in the Yellowstone River early one March. There's a moment for a kid. I didn't find God, I'll tell you that. I was 13 years old. I didn't find much of anything for about three days. (laughs) They scared little Clinty with that one, I'll tell you. What'll you do when you meet your maker? Man. So if... You know what's amazing to me about this power that's here? This loving God. He doesn't mull stuff over. He moves on it. Like the 14th of August, 1966, I'm a drunk. The 15th of August, I'm not a drunk. Moving right along. (laughs) Haven't been a drunk since then. Remember, Wilson says in the book, he says, God comes to most men gradually, but his impact on me was sudden and profound. And I used to think, God, how nice for you, Bill. (laughs) Man, if I had that white light deal going on at Towns Hospital, I guess I could be a little better shape, too. 
But for every one of us, there's a birthday. For every one of us, there's a moment, a blink of an eye. And his impact on me is sudden in that sense. One day I'm a drunk, the next day I'm not. His impact on me was profound because his impact on me went right to that little piece in me that needs a drink all the time. And I didn't know that had happened. There was just a shift. Somebody said one night that God honors even the slightest move in his direction. And and when that man, that kind, lovely man in that Glendale Alano Club said, you're going to drink no matter what. I got it. I got it. I drink no matter what. I say, I'll be home after work. I say, I'll bring the check home. I say, I'm going to have two and then I'll be... I'm go- I drink. I drink. I drink. And I tried to quit a lot of times. And it didn't last very long. The, lo- the longest was six weeks when I... Uh, was on active duty at Camp Pendleton. I told everybody I was going to quit. I quit. Told too many people, really. (laughs) After a while, you get where, all right, I'm going to quit, but it's your little secret, you know. (laughs) Because all my belief is in booze. Because I have an expectancy. And my faith is in alcohol. We're not strangers to faith. Faith is a confident trust in the dictionary, born of experience. You ever grab a bottle and you couldn't drink it then and you put it in the glove compartment and lock it up and you feel better? That's faith is what that is. Where <laughs> you go in and you get the prescription and you put it in your pocket. It's just a piece of paper, but whew, that's better. <laughs> I'll get that filled later, but by God, the day is bright and considerate. <laughs> Just a piece of paper. Hi, how are you? Can I hold the door for you? Suddenly I'm uh, able to function. And all that's happened is I got a prescription, a piece of paper for methamphetamine hydrochloride. <laughs> so I can stay up all night and study. <laughs> Under Highlight everything in blue. and and then red and uh, yellow, so you can't see Because I wanted to get into dental school. And I did. Not a real good place for a guy like me, because there's a clinic on Saturday morning at the University of Oregon Dental School, and there's a guy sitting in a chair, and I'm supposed to be doing something for this guy. I feel there's an amends owing here. If you were a patient at the dental school at Oregon in uh, 59, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> they just come out with that high-speed air-driven handpiece, you know, and uh, I shake like hell. And they don't want to hear you say whoops when you're They throw me out of there, and then I'm drinking on Skid Row, and then I'm in the Marine Corps, and I'm doing all of that. And I was so astonished. After bringing all of that junk along with me, 
I wake up at nine months of sobriety sometime during the spring of 1967 and I counted back and I haven't had a, haven't had a drink in nine months. And I don't know when I last wanted a drink. And I always want a drink. I always want chemical peace of mind. Because I have no other peace of mind. And I happened that morning to be standing at the beach with my youngest son. I have three sons. And he's the apple of my eye. Oh, I love this kid. And I had not been allowed to see him. And now I'm there with him and we're at the beach in Santa Monica and we're just looking out over the water. And I'm standing there and it hit me that I haven't wanted a drink and I can't tell you how long. And I counted back and it's nine months and he's saying, why are you crying, Daddy? And I don't know what I said to him. But I was stunned at what had happened to me. And it will happen to you if you're new here and if you get it that you can't quit. If you get it that All we have to do is ask from knowing that we can't quit. All we have to do is ask. But we must do that. There is somebody spoke of invitation. There must be an invitation. There must be an acknowledgement. I can't do this. I cannot do this. There must be an awareness, I think, for me. That God is love and that he works through people. And he loves me through you. And it's my job to live my life in such a way that he can love you through me. I, I had a... a uh, I caught this from Eileen. She's jumping around pretty good and so is Peg. And I, I, it's up here on the podium someplace. You can't... Keep from jumping around at this podium this weekend. I know that it's up to you, Sharon, to straighten this mess out. I don't want to put any pressure on you, but I think it goes like this. I think it goes like this. I'm, I'm, uh, the tradition, the 12th one says, uh, anonymity has immense spiritual significance. And I always wondered, what does that mean? And along the way, in my travel in sobriety, I had an opportunity to do something I was never going to do, and that is participate in the raising of a little boy. It's like the universe hands you an envelope, and you open it up, and there's the lady and the little boy, and you go, uh, give me another envelope, there's been some mistake here. <laughs> And the universe said, no, because we always get an, it's so generous, we always get an opportunity to do what we failed to do before. And that was my opportunity. And so I said, yes, which is all you have to say here. Yes, yes. And I, uh, his name is Daniel. And one day, after a couple of years of being with that boy, of kneeling down and praying with him at night, of uh, listening to the sweetness of his prayer, of laughing with him. One night, he thanked God he was born at the top of the food chain. And I said, yeah. I just dissolved in laughter. One day, I realized he's looking at me and I'm thinking, this boy loves me. And he had nothing on it. Nothing on it. He didn't want a thing from me. He just loved me. 
And I, uh, I knew in that moment that God was loving me through him, through that little boy. He was six by then, and I knew within two months, I guess, that uh, I loved him that way. No condition on it. There was an anonymity to my love for him. It didn't have my signature on it. It was not conditional. I just loved him. And he got that. He got that. And I know why anonymity. It's like here we have this opportunity to love one another in that way. And watch the remarkable results that occur in the lives of other people. As Luther said, we get this spectacular front row seat to transformative experiences in others' lives. Because God is loving them through us. We're the garden hose. Water the garden. And you'll get all the water you need. And so this relationship, and it is that with Linda, is kind of like that. My love for her would, would be and is conditional. I'm a human being and it is conditioned. It's like, what dress does she have to wear for my ego to calm down? You know? But God loves me through her because she lives her life in such a way that that can happen. And it's so simple. It's my task to live my life in such a way that God can love her through me. And that's, it's that, that's the way that it is. And it all started in 1966. And by the spring of 1967, I'm at the beach with this little boy. And we have this something going on between us, my own son. And maybe three years go by. And I, Clancy is now my sponsor. And I'm going over there to pick him up one day and to drop off a, uh, a late child support payment. We had had a talk about that. Clancy and I. It's very tricky. If you're new here, um, get a sponsor and then avoid them if you can. Because <laughs> they will want to get involved in your personal life. <laughs> and every once in a while you have to throw them a bone, you know. It's sort of like self-regulating an industry so Congress doesn't get involved, you know. you just. One day I went up to Clancy and I, I got a problem for you. And he said... That, yeah. <laughs> he was really thrilled about that. He said, what, what is it? And I said, uh, and there are people around. I hate my ex-wife. And he said, uh, he really didn't. He's a script buster, this guy, you know. He's supposed to say, well, do your best, kid. He didn't say that. He said, uh, you want to do anything about that? Oh, sure. <laughs> I didn't want it. I loved hating it. Gives you something to do on the freeway, you know. He said, if you want to uh, change how you feel about somebody, change how you treat them. Okay, thanks. He said, uh, stay here a minute. How's that child support coming? I'm going to get to that. Yeah. Yeah, you are. There's a court order. You have uh, all kinds of levels of that duty. And you're being cute with it. Pay it. Get caught up and pay it. You're working. And if you can't pay it, get another sponsor. 
Michael's mother out there? <laughs> and I did that. And I did that. I knew we were talking uh, a serious thing. Just as a little footnote to that story. He lives in Orange County. He's married. He's got seven grandkids. This youngest one lives near me. And uh, he's got a wife that I'm nuts about and three kids. And his eldest is 14. And he's like thinking about going back to one of the schools in the east. And these guys went back to Washington, the east coast in Washington, D.C. last spring, this spring, and asked Linda and I if we would join them back there for a week in Washington, D.C. And we love being with them, so we went great. And we hooked up with them in the Mayflower Hotel, and we they had their and we had and uh, we had a wonderful time together. And on Easter Sunday, seven of us are sitting around a table in the dining room of the Mayflower Hotel at brunch, and we said a blessing and thank God that we're a healthy, happy family. Thank God for His bounty. And the thing that touched me so much is that. There, I had caught up with and always made those child support payments, and there was nothing on that table except love. There wasn't some package that couldn't be opened because I didn't pay child support. There was a sweetness to it. And I was so grateful that I had... See, the, the key to this deal seems to me to be tonight that if, if we allow our actions to change under whatever duress, something will happen. And what will happen is that our feelings will change. And we can step into a brand new life, the quiet miracle of a sober life. We can step into that. We can step into what is called this weekend the great life, sobriety, the great life. I had, um, and so I cherish uh, my covenant with Clancy. And I salute him. And I sponsor people. And I have come to these steps again in my sobriety because there were unresolved problems for me. And I had uh, to come to see that my life is unmanageable by me. I had to come to know that there is a power that will restore me to sanity and to define that power for myself and to define sanity to finally get on the road after steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and sit with people. Sit with people that I had harmed. To kneel at graves. And I finally got back to Billings and knelt at that grave where my mother had been buried when I was 14 and full of hatred for her. And came to see that day in that graveyard in the low-rent part of the cemetery in Billings that she always loved me and I could always trust her and I'd been so wrong about that and I'd wandered in the far country for 40 years over that and finally going into this uh, thing called the 12 steps had set me free up there in Billings up there and now um, I watch other guys do that and I know, you know, it seems like the step nine is the uh, kind of the proof of the pudding because we need all the power we can get from the first eight steps to go out and make amends. And uh, 
Gary went up to Sacramento and sat with his family one by one over a weekend and came back with a new appreciation for him because he had said it right as far as he could. And Alan had gone a building contractor back to those people whose jobs he had not completed right before he got sober and after he got sober. and said, what can I do to set this right? And they will tell you. And he did that. He spent about a year and a half, half his time, at no charge, repairing roofs and leaks and squaring up things. And he said he was always about a half a bubble out of plum. <laughs> yeah. And Tom, who is um, Tom's an interesting guy. We all sit at a stag on Thursday night. Tom is an interesting guy because he's a, he was a window washer when he got here and before. He was really a burglar, but he did window washing. <laughs> Not a bad job to have during the day if you're a burglar at night, you know. You know where to go back. South Pasadena was his uh, territory. <clears throat> he remembered, he has a bad memory. He remembered, I mean, a terribly bad memory. He remembered far too much. He remembered 13 homes. And there were more, but he knew of 13. He located them. <clears throat> and he went and knocked on the door. Did you live here six years ago when your house was burglarized? Yeah. I did that. And I came here to clean it up with you. Now that takes a lot of power. That takes power. Tom did that. He finally got down to the last one and there was one more on his list and he had gone by and they weren't home and then he had gone by and stopped and he could not go up to the door. And this morning he called and said, I got to go. I got to go do that. I said, do you want me to go with you? He said, no. I said, call me when you're done. He said, I will. He called at 11 or so that morning and he said, I'm done. I said, how did it go? He said, it's uh, always uh, so amazing. And his voice was different, and he was lighter. I said, tell me what happened. He said, they invited me and an older couple, and they asked me a lot of questions about that burglary. A lot of questions. They were really curious. <laughs> and I told them what I could remember, and the, the final question always is, what can I do to set this right? Because we must be at peace. I said, what they tell you? Because he could have gone to jail, back to jail on any one of these. And he said, uh, he told me I didn't need to do anything more. I said, why they say that? He said, they told me why they said that. They told me that until that morning, this morning when I went over there, they had always believed their son had done that. And that family healed. And Tom is free. And I see a miracle. And uh, I know there's a loving God. I know that. And I know it with every cell in my body. And I suppose uh, I knew it from the beginning. When that guy, without any sense of going after me, said, You'll drink no matter what. And I got it. 
And without even knowing it, I've been free since that time. Free of this bondage of alcohol and its obsessive pull on me. Not free of the bondage itself. That's been a different process as Bob was talking about this afternoon. And it's an ongoing process. I love it here. I welcome you. Thank you.